You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Ed Hill is a Vancouver-based Taiwanese comedian. On his first national North American tour, we talked about his early years in Canada, his connection to Taiwan Fest, and how his overachieving Asian tendencies came out when he first started doing comedy. In 2021, Ed became the first comedian of Taiwanese-Canadian descent to release a full one-hour comedy special titled Candy and Smiley. From March 30th to April 2nd, Ed will be doing an off-Broadway show called Stupid Ed at The Tank here in New York City. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988 and its mission is 1. To evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. 2. To oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. 3. To fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. 4. To contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. 5. To reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATOA, visit their website www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. Hi, Felicia. Thank you for having me. Great. It's so nice to have you on the podcast. We did mention you in one of our episodes in which I interviewed Charlie Wu about the Taiwan Fest. He mentioned that you were going to be one of the performers there and that you were doing a stand-up comedy set under the theme of independence. Is that right? Yeah, that just happened this past summer. It's actually my return to the, the festival I did it the year prior during pandemic time. So this is the first time I actually be able to be in front of a regular audience with you know people within the theater. Now we did a theme where it's finding the funny independence and also, you know, how independence is more than just a political theme, that it could also be a personal experience and what that means for, you know, for us as comedians through that journey. Yeah, I'm very curious about how you worked into your performance. I had wanted to watch it, but I wasn't able to catch it. And I don't know if there is a replay available. Was there a replay anywhere? You might be able to get a copy from the festival. I think they do record everything, but I think for contractual reasons, because performances usually become televised, so I couldn't publicize it. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. I'm wondering, did you at all broach the topic of Taiwan independence since this is Talking Taiwan? That's actually a theme that kind of weaves in and out my material, both, you know, actually this current hour I'm doing and also the last hour. You know, that Taiwanese identity, I think, is really what shaped who I am. So as much as I don't want to talk about it, it's going to come out in one way, shape, or form. You know, I actually have a, you know, it's a joke not about Taiwan dependence. It's more about relationships, about how I urge people not to lie because it is truly a blessing to be loved. And I tell people I used to lie to my wife and I told her I like country music. And I obviously do not like country music. And she even busted me. She's like, oh, yeah, what country? I'm like, well, Taiwan. <laughs> and so again, you know, is that I'm subtly inputting this who I am through a way where it's not aggressive and in your face. And I think, again, it's more digestible for people. And I think that's really the nature. How did you get connected with Taiwan Fest? 
we were looking at potential ways to involve Taiwanese cultural event and the TV show was developing. At the time the TV show, we didn't go ahead with it because of a number of reasons. So that was really my first exposure was a collaborator with the festival. But the history goes way back. I used to go every year with my parents when I was young. And this is the thing we would do. And there's also, you know, we don't get a chance to go back to Taiwan every year because, you know, travel and costs and stuff like that, school. So this is kind of a little moment to go home. And I just remember watching these performances and now I'm the person on the other side of the stage and it's quite an honor. And the first time I performed for Taiwan Fest, I actually said on stage that it's truly something that is, you know, life-changing for me personally to be doing how is that? I'm always very curious about that because it's so different for everybody, right? Is it the reaction of the audience? Is it the live aspect? What is it about that experience that was, as you put it, life-changing for you? Well, I mean, you know, to be able to perform as part of something that resonated with my identity for so long is something that's rare. For me, anyways, I can't speak for all Taiwanese people, but you know, I did this piece for the CBC a while ago where I feel like I live between two masks. Canada, I'm Taiwanese, and Taiwan, I'm Canadian. And this really having to find this, this hybrid of who I am as a person. And, you know, now with the whole geopolitical climate, with, you know, China flexing their muscles, which makes it even more difficult. So again, it's just this constant exclusion of who you are as a person. People tell you you're Chinese. People tell you that Taiwan's not a country. Upon self-reflection, I never even know what China's like. Like, what is China? If I'm Chinese, how come I don't know anything about China? I visited once for like three days with my dad, and we had a horrible time as a tourist, and that's all I have. And so it's this dissonance, really. It's it's not fun. It's miserable. And to be on stage, finally, at that moment, I realized, you know, everything I did makes sense. This is who I am. This is where I'm meant to be. So that's why I think, you know, that's the life-changing aspect. And to be doing the medium where I usually communicate with my audience in the art form that's really not traditionally Taiwanese or even, you know, an Asian comedian in general is not a medium we usually pursue. It's, again, it's inspirational for me in many ways. Right. Yeah, it is pretty rare. I was actually very curious about whether when you grew up, what your upbringing was like and if you participated in the Taiwanese Canadian Association and all that kind of stuff. Because I actually grew up in Ottawa on the other end of Canada. And I grew up dragging me to a lot of those association meetings and, you know, the kind of the awkwardness. But then it was a really important part of my identity, like knowing that I was Taiwanese, having other peers and kids. And I grew up with my cousins. And that was a important part of my identity, knowing that I was Taiwanese. And also the same thing as you. I mean, what do I know about China? My parents are not from China. I you know, don't have any connection to that. So it's interesting to hear what you have to say. So I guess growing up, you had to deal with that kind of identification confusion about the Taiwan-China comparison or issue? I mean, definitely in public, you know, having a face complex like this. Yeah. I think it happens for other, mm-hmm. you know, Asian people. Too. People just assume you're Chinese. Like, okay, well, I mean, allow me to explain or clarify who I am. And, you know, so that's that's always been the struggle. But, you know, my, my blessing is... My connection with Taiwan is really through my dad. Uh, my dad has always instilled both the values of what it means to be Taiwanese at the same time as what the going on of back, how, what things are, you know, happening there. 
So he never let that go, and he made sure that we stay connected to it. And on contrast, my mom was definitely more westernized, and she also, you know, kind of pushed us to not also just exclude herself from the world that we are in, which is, you know, in Vancouver where we grew up. So it's not easy. It's sometimes because the two sides conflict, but I think it's possible to walk that middle path. And, you know, I'm glad they did the way they did it. And I know that you tell this funny story about how when your family went to Canada, you thought that you're on a vacation because your parents told you that, but you didn't realize that you guys were actually moving over to Canada. So how long was it when you immigrated to Canada that you were first able to return to Taiwan? What was that like? So we came here on November 10th, 1994. I remember that very clearly. The day after his Remembrance Day, so I didn't have school, but we had a giant note. Yeah. And it's in Vancouver. It's very rare. Yeah. Um, so is this what it's supposed to be like? I mean, I did not expect to be this way. We didn't have any of our furniture with us at that time either. Everything's still in a crate on a boat. So we slept in the mattress in front of the fireplace just to keep warm. I remember also writing, you know, Christmas within the year. I kind of, we didn't celebrate Christmas, but it was something people did. So I thought, you know, I'll write some Christmas cards back to my friends. I said goodbye to them in, in class. Nobody wrote back. Not a single person wrote back quite heartbreaking. I don't know if it's just never got to them or for them to actually send a card at that time where things are not so international is probably quite difficult for them. They probably didn't speak English. So to write in English and mail it out is probably difficult. So I don't think it's, I hope that they're not ignoring me. But, oh, wow. So you wrote back um, to your friends in Taiwan from Canada? Wow. Yeah, nobody wrote back. Oh. I wrote a few cards, I remember. And so I really didn't go back until probably... I would say probably a year and a half, two years after being in Canada. It's because my great-grandmother died and to go back to the service. And it was so interesting because at that time, I didn't feel any different. I didn't feel as if I have changed. But everyone around me see me as somebody who is North American. They came, went back and questions are, do you steak every day? Got a lot taller at that time. It's probably just because of puberty. Came when I was 10. I went back when I was 12. Was puberty's hitting. I was like, oh, did you drink milk a lot? Is that why? How's your English? People were testing you on your English and trying to ask you to say certain things. So it's almost as if I feel the same, but things are no longer the same. So there's quite a bit of acceptance I have there. And I kind of went back, back and forth a little bit throughout my teenage years. School office gets in the way. It's not really until my early adulthood I start going back more regularly, either to perform or just to, you know, just to visit. I still have family back there. And interestingly, the older I get, the more there's this, I don't even know how to describe it. I've been trying to describe it. It's this feeling of wanting to go home, wanting to go and go back to where I'll start. And I talked about it in my first special and I put it under the premise of for my whole life, I've been trying to reject parents, but metaphorically, really, parents are the connection to where I'm from. As she said, the heart always goes back to where the soul comes from. I think that's probably the phenomenon that's occurring for me. So, yeah, you know, I'm having a daughter in June. I'm hoping that I can show her Taiwan because she's also going to be Taiwanese by default. Congratulations. Thank you. So you said that you perform in Taiwan. So when you perform in Taiwan, do you perform in English or Taiwanese, Chinese? It's usually English. I've been asked to do Mandarin, and then people ask me, have you ever performed Mandarin? I said, well, rarely. So yeah. they're like, okay, we don't trust you. <laughs> I'm not going to fight with you. I mean, I think it'll be fine. It's just some of the phrasing and, you know, the references I need to change. But other than that, 
Because the material is so introspective, so it doesn't matter what language you put it in. It's have you tried me. to do it in Mandarin? I have. I mean, I, they wanted me to do a show, so I, I should wrote it all out. Yeah. I'm, I was ready to go, but mm-hmm. they don't want to do it. So. <laughs> it's okay. So usually it's English, you know, and a lot of people who do come to the shows, they usually speak English. Although when I did a show in Taichung, most of the people didn't speak English and they came because they wanted the comedy club experience because that's not a thing happens there. I think the only club is in Taipei. So, you know, they seen on TV. And so after the show, you know, some people came and said, oh, you know, it was great. You know, I just, I didn't really know what you're saying, but it's just, I really wanted the vibe. I was like, okay, <laughs> it shows because you, you were just sitting there silently the whole time. So you didn't get too many laughs. Then. <laughs> I mean, I got some people who understood laugh. People who didn't understand just sat there and walked. Oh, that's interesting. I think they just want to be part of the experience. Yeah, yeah. That's really funny. So, of course, in preparing for this interview, I did do some research about your background. And I found it interesting that I came across something that said that you actually studied to be a therapist. Is that right? And what happened with that? Yeah, that's my trade. I am a I'm a registered clinical counselor, a Canadian certified counselor. So that's just the other part. It's kind of like Bruce Wayne, Batman type of situation. <laughs> and I think that it actually informs a lot of my comedy because I think the introspection comes from that. And the way I, I look at it is, you know, I listen to other people's stories during the day. Nighttime is when I actually tell my own. It's not therapy for me. I'm not going to put it that way because that's just not healthy in any way, shape or form. But I think the idea of being able to face the things you don't want to face and avoid avoidance is definitely a big part from both my training and also, you know, just my personal experience. Yeah, I find comedians very interesting. I think comedians are people who are very observant and sometimes they talk about things that are just very everyday, but they make an observation about it that people can relate to. So I'm sure there's a connection there between what you do as a therapist and as a comedian. And I'm also curious, how did you end up doing stand-up comedian or getting into that? I took a class. I was in my graduate school at the time. I used to be a nightclub DJ for okay. a number of years. Yeah, I was always very musical. I played the piano. I had my performance degree in classical piano. I was 16 because Taiwanese parents, that's what they do. It's either violin or piano. Never drums. <laughs> I did that for a period of time as a DJ just to make money and be able to go to school and it's just the schedule caught up to me. It was, you got to stay up so late. At these nightclubs and the environment, it's not super healthy with the alcohol and, you know, things going on. So I stepped away and I really want to get back on stage in some capacity creatively. And it was a class offered. And I went in as a diligent Asian student because the purpose of the class is for you to come up with a five-minute set. And you perform it at the end of this class like in an actual comedy club with your friends and family and audience members. So as a way of initiation into doing this, you know, could be more welcoming, supportive. I didn't know that. I joined late. So I just bought a book, read about it, wrote the whole thing out already, and then entered the class with the complete product. So the rest of the class, really, I'm just there polishing that the teacher is giving you ideas and stuff like that. And I didn't find out till later, um, some of the people in the class with me, you know, we stay in touch. They're like, Ed, we thought you were a plant. I thought the teacher putting you in the class so to motivate them and it's because they're like who is this guy like where it's just learning how to do basic joke structure he's coming in with a complete finished product like why are you here which I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know it at all you know, overachieving as, Asian <laughs> yeah exactly and I went out there prior to the actual showcase I went out there and did some shows on my own I went to some open oh, nice. which are a very different experience because they're not very supportive yeah and obviously I'm not very good at the time and 
very brutal. So I knew what it was like before I did the showcase. When I did the showcase, I'm like, okay, this is not real. This is great, but this is not how it's supposed to work. So I actually saw the reality of it. And I think that's why it allowed me to continue because I had reality on my side. Because to do a showcase and do so well and then go out into the real circuit and be judged, I think a lot of people would quit because I can't. I don't want to do this. Yeah, or you have to develop a thick skin. I think when you're a creative person creating something original, it's going to get judged. I mean, let's face it, not everyone can like you. Everyone's got different tastes or different preferences, so it happens. But you have to get back up and out there. Yeah. So I went out there on my own mm-hmm. to see what reality is like. <laughs> I'm a blessing in disguise. So what do you do when you feel like you're quote unquote bombing and the audience is not laughing or getting your jokes like you know because that's a tough thing but I'm sure there's something that you can do because there's also the live aspect you're doing stand-up so how do you deal with that yeah it's probably one of the worst feelings on the planet (laughs) yeah because because you gotta remember there's no there's no music there's yep. no dancing. There's <laughs> no, no commercial. There's, commercial. There's, there's no in between. So they don't like you because they don't like you for who you are. So it's, it's straight to the soul. Uh, you have no buffer. Uh, you can't be a dancer. You're like, well, they just didn't like the choreography. <laughs> it's not it's not me. Or they just didn't like the instrumental of music. It's not me as a singer. But as a comedian, they don't like you because they don't like you for who you are. But I mean, is, just it, you is there not some way to pivot to tell another joke or try to feel the audience? Yeah. So usually it's not because the jokes are not good. Usually it's um, at this point when we bomb is because your cadence is off or your energy is off or the way that you are actually communicating with the audience is off. It's either you're coming off as aggressive or you're hostile or you're too timid. So it's almost like... A, boxing match you have to match the rhythm of the crowd sometimes crowds are hostile so you cannot go on there being nice and you know passive you actually need to attack them because then they're like oh this guy is on the same level as us and okay we're part of your team sometimes crowds are very passive they just want there and listen they're very nice people and you go in there too aggressive they're like okay we're not your team why are you attacking us we like you so it's it's that back and forth so usually when bomb is not the material because you can you can write the jokes down that they're funny to read, but it's how you perform it that's gonna make the difference. So what happens now when I bomb, you know, is I actually appreciate them because you don't learn anything from good shows. You just like oh, I had a great show. I felt great. I mean it's good. Don't tell don't get me wrong, I like it. <laughs> but you learn a tremendous amount from a bad show because you're like, okay, that's what happened. I did that. And it's, you know, a lot of people say it's the audience's fault. I mean, unless the audience is so intoxicated to the point they can't, you know, actually <laughs> understand. It's usually not the audience's fault because mm-hmm. they're there for a show, paid for a show mm-hmm. to listen to you. It gave you an hour of their life to listen to your thoughts, which is ridiculous content. You know, so it's, it's usually the comedian. And how I deal with it is two ways. One is to actually reflect on what is, you know, what happened, you know, and there's really, that's, difficult because the last music you want to forget. The second aspect now that I started to do is if things are not going well, I will purposely do more material because hopefully then I can get back to equilibrium and at least it'll be memorable rather than funny because people remember memorable and interesting. Then. So I will actually purposely do more, uh, stay on stage longer, which a lot of comedians do the opposite. They'll get off stage not doing well. Here. 
But then, then what's interesting is as I prolong the performance, people don't leave. People actually listen because they're like, okay, this guy's not quitting. So obviously he's got something to share and then let's, let's give him a chance. And then Tide will turn a little bit. I'm not saying it turns complete every time, but at least they're on your side towards the end. That is a very interesting tactic. And I'm sure you could probably test some other material, right, that you maybe weren't intending or hadn't planned to use at the particular show. Yeah. It doesn't strike me that you're the type of comedian that really addresses highly controversial issues because one of my questions was, is there anything, any topic in your stand-up that you feel is off limits that you think shouldn't be touched upon? I don't think so. I think that any topic is fair game. I think what the trap that obviously a lot of performers fall into is they don't have any authenticity behind what they're trying to say. So which a lot of times they haven't thought about it. And, you know, what does it mean for them to say these things? So then again, if you don't, if you don't have a connection to it, there's nothing, it means nothing to you. Why would it mean anything to the audience? And then now then this open field, because no one knows what it means, then it's up for interpretation. And now here it comes. Usually, is, I'm offended. So I think you know, as much as difficult topics are you know, hard to talk about, they're not often. So I'll give you an example. So I tell the story currently about how I was on the playground first week here in Canada. I was lost. I didn't know where I was going. And a gentleman came up to me. He goes, hey, if you don't know where you are and then go back to where you came from. And the you know, punchline is I was really shocked because this man had a turban on. I was like, this is the most multicultural <clears throat> racism I've ever seen in my life. It's very progressive. <clears throat> and so and then so that that is the joke. And then I got a message from a gentleman after a show one time, I think it was in Quinnell, British Columbia. It's a small town. He goes, you know, Ed, you're a bad person calling out brown people to further your career. You're a bad person. And I wrote back, responded. I said, you know, what I did was I just, I described a true story. As much as I would like it to be different, one thing probably missing this equation is probably a time machine. And now for a short break. Hello listeners, I'm excited to share that we have a donor who has offered Talking Taiwan a matching donation of $5,000. That means when we raise $5,000, it will be automatically doubled to $10,000. So this is the time for you to make a contribution to Talking Taiwan and help us raise $10,000. You can make a contribution to Talking Taiwan on GoFundMe.com, Patreon.com forward slash Talking Taiwan, or PayPal and Zelle using our email address TalkingTaiwanPodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're old school, just send us a check to our mailing address, which you'll find on our website at TalkingTaiwan.com forward slash support. All of our donors will get exclusive first listening access to my interviews with Robert Tao, founder of UMC, who in August of 2022 pledged to donate 100 million US dollars to help Taiwan defend itself. Kevin Lin, one of the co-founders of Twitch and current co-founder and CEO of MetaTheory. The Boba Guys, co-founders Andrew Chow and Bin Chen. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who has been inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. And Michelle Ho, an attorney, activist and author of Reading with Patrick, 
which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. We'd like to thank our first donor of the year, the Greater New York Region Overseas Taiwanese Pen Club, and all of our supporters. Now, back to the episode. So, you know, and then really, I kind of come back to it in my current performance. I added this piece now because that experience that happened is then I go back is, you know, who's really a bad person? Is that guy a bad person saying that to me? Am I a bad person telling a story? Or maybe none of this matters. Maybe what we need to do as people is figure out who we are before we try to understand. And so I think it's, again, is going back to the intention. And, you know, I think he probably understood that. Okay, he obviously thought about it. He has some thought behind it, and it's a true story. And I'm just telling you what happened and how I respond. There's no right or wrong to facts. It's just what it is, what it is. And what you want to do with it is up. Yeah. And I think what happens is sometimes people deviate from that and they get in trouble. Yeah, and people are very sensitive now in this climate. So much political correctness. Yeah. Do you have any comedic influences or comedians that you admire? Yeah, I, I have three. One is the late, great Louis Anderson, who passed away recently. He's my personal friend and mentor. I met him in Los Angeles a decade ago. We work a number of times together. He's always been you know, very helpful towards me. You know, one thing he told me early on is, Ed, talk about your family. You know, I know you have a lot of thoughts about different things. But focus back on your family because... That's what makes who you are. And that I, he saw that. I mean, I didn't see that at the time. And at the same time, also the universal truth is we all have some sort of family. Either it's one we recreated ourselves or one we came from, and that's going to resonate with wherever you go. And he's an embodiment that he talks about his family tremendously. The second one is Mike Birbiglia, who was a comedian from New York City, I think originally in Boston. He did this thing where it's called his public personal journal, I think, where he would publish his journal online oh. to read and as a way to reflect and see the funny in his life. And, you know, his performance is also very introspective. So that's something that I resonate with. And it's very storytelling based. And the last one is Drew Michael, who is definitely more prominent now. And he really takes a non-traditional approach to comedy, you know, rather than seeing comedy as just a way to laugh. Comedy is a way to understand the world around you. So it's his latest special, Red, Blue, Green, he actually did on a stage. He created a comedy club on the stage. So the audience in the theater is watching the audience watching a show. Mm -hmm. And he ended his show on a, why did the chicken cross the road joke? <laughs> and it was not about the chicken. And it was not even a joke. But it was very profound to why the chicken crossed the road. So those are probably the three people that has the biggest influence on me at this current time. I mean, there's probably some other people, but you know, those are the three I kind of yeah. recently with. Have you had a chance to meet the last two that you mentioned? I've been to Mike's performances, so we never worked together. Drew, I've never met. And Louis, yeah. obviously, I know personally. I also saw on your website that some of your tweets have been read on the Jimmy Fallon show. What do you think of Jimmy Fallon? And would you like to be a guest on his show or like to connect with him somehow? I'm sure if you will have me on, yeah. I'm happy to be on. I'm <laughs> right. not going to say no. I just don't know if I'm interesting or famous enough yeah. to be one of his guests. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, the thing is the tweets I wrote are all true stories. You know, going to the drive throughs I was a garbage can. My mom's would haunt the house, every single furniture. You know, well, that's from there. I'm like, okay, thanks, mom. You ruined the experience. <laughs> so these are just all true stories yeah. of me calling the bank and I said my password, bank sucks and awkwardly to tell my password. 
<laughs> so these are all things that actually um, that happen. Right. I think that's reality sometimes, you know, real life sometimes will create humor that you can't write on paper. Yeah, you can't you know, just make it. So much more it interesting. Yeah, you can't make it. Yeah. Are you on Twitter much? What do you think of Twitter these days? I used to be more active on Twitter. I think currently it's kind of, it's a bit of a mess. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the mess is just, you know, the reliability of Twitter is kind of under, you know, threats because all the policy changes, people leaving, people coming. And so I think overall, it's hard to reach your audience now on Twitter. Again, it's just so many social media platforms that kind of dilutes. Just you say one thing and you have to say it 50,000 times on there. <laughs> on Twitter. Twitter is so fast. I mean, I'm on there, but very minimally. Yeah. Yeah. You got to do a dance on TikTok while you say your message now. It's like, I, I don't know. There's so many. Are you on TikTok? I tried. I couldn't. <laughs> I can't. I don't know what to do. Yeah, I, I didn't even bother. I wanted to talk to you about your comedy special, Candy and Smiley. And I understand that it was supposed to be a traditional stand-up comedy, but that kind of changed because the pandemic hit. And then you had to change the format. Is that right? Yeah. So we were going to tape. In March 2020, which we know will happen in March 2020. <laughs> so everything shut down two weeks prior to the taping. I still remember sitting there with the team. The prime minister got on the OTM and said, we're shutting down the country. I was like, okay, <laughs> this is not happening. Because we, we had this hope that maybe we can do it prior to... Our fear wasn't the actual spread of the disease. I mean, that's part of the work. The fear is the fear that people have. Because then people are scared. They're not going to participate in anything. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's the fear is probably one of the worst contagion out there. So we thought, let's, let's get ahead of that fear. Let's get it done. And then, you know, we'll figure out the rest later. And then, I mean, it happened. So then the original idea was maybe we'll push it back to October 2020. Maybe this thing will blow over by October. We can film it then. And July rolled around. We're like, yeah, this thing's not going to end anytime soon. I mean, we're in 2020. Mm. So I went back to the drawing board and knowing the restrictions and what we can do, I was like, let's do it as a way of almost like a group therapy setting. And it's very daunting. It's definitely an emotional roller coaster because everybody in the room are in my immediate circle. They all know certain things about me and shared specific moments with me, with the exception of one person. I personally pick one person we didn't know much. Just she's there as a representation of as a comedian. Um, but yeah, that, that was, you know, it's difficult, but also I'm glad that the way it was. It's interesting because at the end of that taping, everybody cried because it's just, that was the emotional climate of the time that we're in because while well, like what's going on with the world and life, everyone who watched the special also cried. Um, so I get getting these emails saying, you know, it was very good. I cried. It's like, okay, I, I put out a comedy special. Everyone cried. I was <laughs> like, what, what is going on? Um, but yeah, but I, I think if we did it in a way where it's in a traditional venue and it's sparsely attended, I think it would have lost its essence. Um, so I'm glad we did get it. Right. It would have been a different experience. Yeah. I did actually watch it and I found myself wondering more about the moments off camera that weren't captured, like your interactions with the audience and maybe what they were saying and their reactions. I'm sure a lot of that didn't actually make it into the final version, right? Yeah, I mean, our first take, actually, so what you're seeing, the first 20 minutes is not the first take. It's actually the second take, because for the first take, it was the emotional intensity, because no one knew what was going on. Everyone thought they were there to watch a comedy show, and they come in, they're like, okay, we're sitting in the circle. 
this is not. Ed didn't tell us anything. I didn't I personally didn't tell anybody anything. So the emotional intensity of the first 20 minutes, the first time we did it was incredible because everyone is so tense, but they also, it's jokes. So, but then we couldn't use it because there was a fly that joined the tape. So oh, it's a no. giant fly. I was going through the Oh hole. dear. And I, we, I went to the director and said, can we edit it out somewhere? And it's like, no, it's too big of a fly. There's no oh, way. It's wow. in every shot. I'm like, Smith, why? Oh my God. But then I think that also eases the attention to everybody because they're like, okay, this is hilarious. And then, you know, we did it in a way where it's almost like a story circle yeah. of the indigenous culture where people would join the circle as the story went on. And I think that the, the funniest part is my parents joining in the end is they, for some reason, they can't walk at the same speed. So they just can't. Mary, 40 years, can't walk at the same speed into the circle. So the director said, can you guys just pace yourself? So they finally did it. And the director calls cut. And then we're like, okay, wh- what? Like, they're, they're walking in. It's fine. And he goes up to my dad. He goes, Smiley, can you look at least a little bit proud of your son? Because you look like you don't want to be here. <laughs> and my dad goes, I don't know how to do that. This is You're asking too much. I walk the pace you want me to walk. I'm not doing this. And you're like, and he's um, like, this is my face. <laughs> and then, you know, we capture a little bit in the credits when we sit in the circle because they want to just to, you know, converse with each other mm-hmm. and my brother starts shaking my hand i was like dude what are you doing like you're my bro- why are you shaking my you're my brother you know me my whole life why are you shaking my hand other people were, like asking about oh well because we had pasta cater um because oh, nice. we we filmed at the italian cultural center okay. we rented the halls so they had pasta. everyone's excited with the pasta nice. people are asking about the pasta i'm like can we not talk about the pasta right now <laughs> um so yeah, i was just it was okay well we'll just we roll with it whatever happens happens <laughs> But there's just all this off-camera stuff. Yeah, that's funny. We, Maybe we you should have to, some, you know, if you create. captured any of that, you could have some outtakes in the extended version yeah. or and something. And then the last five minutes, which is the, you probably saw the most emotionally driven part of the show, they had a pianist in the awning outside performing for their nightly acoustic sessions because they can only have dinner outside. So he's blasting the piano. And then, so we had the halls organized to speak to them. They're like, we can't stop the piano. We have businesses we're running. So I'm looking at my sound guy. I'm like, so what do we do? He goes, we just got to go with it. Yeah. <laughs> so we have this piano going. I don't think it captured too much of the piano. But again, it's just like, okay, we just got to roll. There's nothing we can do. There's beginning to end. You just got to play the card you dealt with. Yeah. You, know, you have a pandemic on the background. <laughs> piano going. Parents can look proud. Okay. People just want to have pasta. Fine. Let's just go. I can appreciate that doing this podcast, even though we edit, we've had like a dog barking in the background. We've had a bird chirping in the background and things like things happen. You know, we're not in a controlled studio or environment. It happens. Yeah. Um, what does your family or your parents think of you being a comedian? Because, you know, it's a typical thing for Taiwanese or Asian parents to have certain opinions about their kids who would pick non-traditional careers. Yeah, I, I think they reached a level of acceptance. I don't expect a explicit verbal approval, but they do it through their behaviors. They share with people. They tell people what I'm doing. They watch the shows. You know, my dads are trying to pirate the special. I said, Dad, I have a copy. I can send you. You don't need to pirate off Amazon. It makes all the difference. I'm pirating my son's show. I'm like, okay, it's <laughs> weird. It's the, what was the point of this? And then my mom, you know, obviously watched it very quickly. Although the first time she watched it, she said it's available now on streaming. She goes, okay, I'm going to fast forward to the part where I show up. I'll watch <laughs> the rest later. I'm like, okay, fine. Okay, whatever. Touche. 
And that's interesting because the current special I'm working on, that's going to be filmed in April. The title, Stupid Ed, actually is a homage to their acceptance. Because I was looking through my old family album one time with my wife. And there's all these pictures of me. I used to be a goth, oh. ruining every single family vacation possible in my full goth getup in Hawaii. <laughs> so my dad walks by, he sees it, he goes, Stupid Ed. He walks away. That, you know, as much as that moment was invalidating or judgmental, I realized that was his way of accepting who I am. He finally accepted who I am as a person. And that's why it's, it's titled Stupid Ed. And I think that's for my parents, that's as far as it's going to go. Um, you know, down to, you know, when I asked my dad to be part of the taping last time, first question back, he's like, where's my contract? I was like, okay, dad, really? Like, I'm not coming to you as an agent. I think they understand the purpose of the special. And I, it, really as a way to thank them, you know, as a child. You can't really thank your parents in a way, you know, as as much as they've done for you. I just don't think that's possible. It's at least a little token of my appreciation of what they've done. And that's why I titled it after my first special. And they don't mind that they may be the butt end of some of your jokes that you're telling? Well, I mean, my dad is like, this is the only show I'm coming to. I said, like, why? He's like, because you just talk about me. I just talk to myself then. Why, why do I need okay. to come see you? Okay, fine. And where do you want to go with your comedy? What are your ambitions? Would you like to have your own late night show? Do you want to write a sitcom? Or like, what do you want to do with it? I think, you know, currently my goal is to do Broadway, which I am doing in April, which I'm very happy. Um, And, you know, to complete this current special. You know, long-term goals, what I really, you know, want to do is, you know, once, once I think the second special is done, I will be working on my third. So I'm not really a person who wants to be part of a television show, an actor or stuff like that, or host anything. I just don't think that's me. My wife is like, you're very good at being yourself, and that's about it. And so that's either <laughs> extremely profound or utterly egotistical. So, so really my goal is to complete these series of work as far as I have planned for is, you know, Candy and Smiley was a story about the last generation where it all began. Mm-hmm. Stupid is about me and my generation. And the next special I'm hoping to do is about the next generation. So it's about the three generations and how it comes together through my eyes and through my words. And that's really what I'm hoping to do. And what's going to happen past that? I don't know. We'll see. You know, I always told myself if I'm done with my story, I'm not having fun anymore, I'll stop. And it's really the end is dependent on what you really want to do and the actual finish. I don't believe there's an actual finish line in life. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, until sure. Until you're dead, of course. But, you know, it's, I'll see where I am at a point. So I think that, that serves me better than having an artificial goal. Because sure. every time I kind of put myself, I got to do that, I got to get that. Right. And I get it. And I'm like, it's not really anything. Yeah, yeah. once it's you just, get okay, there, I'm here. it's kind of like, yeah. okay. <laughs> now what? Yeah. So talk to me about your off-Broadway show. You're going to be in New York in March, and it's also called Stupid Ed, right? Yeah, it's called Stupid Ed. It's my final run of the show prior to taping it in April. So it'll be on March 30th to April 2nd at the Tank Theater in New York City. So the show is really about acceptance, and that's about self-acceptance in where we discuss the concept of love. What does really mean to love yourself and love other people because they're interrelated? And really, relationships I explore is a relationship with the female figures in my life. My grandmother, my mother, my wife, so on and so forth, the ex-partners. Through that, as metaphorically, this is where the idea of Taiwan comes in, is if Taiwan is my father, Canada is my mother. Taiwan gave me my identity, who I am. 
what shaped me and gave me the values is Canada. So it's, again, what that means then to love myself, if this is where I came from, this is what I am. So this is really, you know, and then there's really a lot, you know, introspection and a lot of dark topics that is probably going to be even more intimate than the last special. And then again, I'm not planning on ending a laugh again on this special because I find that life doesn't know. Nobody laughs at the ice. That's very weird. <laughs> so I want the experience to parallel what life is actually like. It's not a sad ending either. So I'm not ending it on the, that's all crying. But I would say the ending is an ending of peace and contentment. Acceptance. Yeah. Earlier, you said something about going back in a time machine, which makes me think about the story podcast that I came across that you did, The Guide to Quarantine. Mm -hmm. And it's like a futuristic podcast. It's set in 2035 or something. Yeah, with another pandemic hit, and this time we don't know what to do. So the government designed a container program, which helps sustain human life for one year, and everyone gets a container, and you find out. Through the main character of Andy, which is my cousin's name, I named him after my cousin just to make fun of him, to really. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little petty than that way. He's like, why'd you name it Andy? I'm like, your name's Andy. And you play video games all day, so we got to make the character sound like you. But he finds out the true purpose of the container and what it actually serves and what it really means to be alive. So that's, you know, I, I was born during the pandemic because you can't perform. So I just wrote the story and I think it's a story about hope and story about understanding yourself. And then I think that's during the pandemic, a lot of us did that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I see that I went up to episode six. I did listen to some of it. Is it going to continue beyond episode six or you think that's it? Um, that's season one. I had the idea of continuing with season two and three. But <laughs> I also don't want to force it. I yeah. mean, I can definitely write a compelling story. Sure. I think it may not resonate with people anymore. I just, a lot of people don't want to talk about the pandemic anymore. Yeah. No one wants well. to hear about the court. <laughs> so what advice do you have for others who are thinking of doing stand-up or being a comedian? Do you have any thoughts or experience you want to share? Well, I think you know, it could be stand-up or it could be any art form. I think is a few things. Number one is figure out why are you doing what you're doing? What does it mean to you? I mean, that might take a bit of time to figure out, but at least start on the journey. Because you know if you do it for any superficial things beyond what it means to you, and you find yourself at an empty place. In the end, you're going to be resentful. You're going to be angry because people are just going to get things you're not going to get. There's, you're not the right person, time, and place. And none of that stuff matters. And the second thing is actually, is not about doing comedies. My recommendation to people is actually live your life. Be authentic because that will reflect in your art. All great artists, I find, are very authentic to who they are and what they do. And so, you know, a lot of times people think they have to be a certain person. And I think that's, it comes full circle. They try very hard to be a certain brand. In the end, they come back being who they are. And I think there's a process, of course. But I think that's probably my advice to people. You know, people always say, Ed, why don't you give some like actual concrete, mechanical, skillful advice? And I'm like, well, you'll learn that anyways. Anybody can do that. Anybody can write a joke, but it, to actually to understand the essence, who you are and being a person so you can make those jokes work for you, that's that's a whole ball. So that's why that's usually the advice I get. Yeah. I mean, that's so personal. You can't give a formula for that. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with my audience or anything that we haven't covered so far in this interview? I think probably the one thing to let your listeners know I mean, this is my experience anyways, and oftentimes when I bump to people with 
you know, telling his background, also the same experience. A lot of times we feel alone because we're away from home. We're pursuing whatever endeavor we're in, either it's arts or technology or engineering or health, whatever it may be. We feel like we're fighting this battle on our own. And I think it's one thing to remember is that we may be running parallel, but we're connected in some ways. I realized that because I met a young lady in, of all places, Grand Perry, Alberta, very small town, oil rig town. I was there to do a benefit show. All oil riggers, obviously, there's much as I'm going to connect to them. It's, <laughs> I'm going to do my best. After the show, a young lady came to say hi. She's actually from Taiwan. and She's a student there. She's, I think, dating someone in Alberta at that time. And she came to me, she said, thank you for telling your story because your story is actually my story. And she goes, you know, oftentimes you may feel as if no one's listening to your story. Believe me, are. So please keep doing what you're doing. And that's the moment I realized what I'm doing is greater than just comedy, you know, because you get defeated sometimes when you don't get certain opportunities. You know, what I actually realized is you probably didn't get these opportunities because you're probably meant for something greater. And that experience has taught me that, you know, because now people know what Taiwan is, what a Taiwanese person is like. Their experience with me you know, will reflect their future interaction with Taiwanese people. Um, and I think that it's going to have a greater impact on life than anything else, than, than a TV spot or, you know, any type of show. It's actually that personal experience you have with audience members that's going to resonate for them. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Pretty much my social media login on my website is King Ed Hill. So it's kingedhill.com. I am not a king. I just picked that because there's a street in Vancouver called King Edward. I thought it'd be really funny if I put it on everything. And it turns out most people don't know that street. So now I just look like a giant. I do. I think there's a King Edward in Ottawa. (laughs) There's probably a lot of King Edwards in Canada. (laughs) I'm just like, okay, not just like a pompous jerk. If I already picked it, I'm going to change it at this point. So King Ed Hill. That's um, great. It's memorable. Yeah, or kingedhill.com. All my information is there. Okay. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out of your schedule, Ed, to be on this interview. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Taiwanese-Canadian comedian Ed Hill. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988. To learn more about NATOA, visit their website www.natwa.com Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.